Hi, this is the Social Jello with Angelo show. My name's Angelo. I'm a social scientist, surfer, martial artist, and a whole lot of other things. Coming to you live from Kasai City, Japan, the Social Jello with Angelo show. Hey, what's up, everyone? Thank you for checking out Social Jello with Angelo. Today, I interviewed Stefan Kesting. Stefan. I think it's Stefan, not Stephen. We talk about that during the podcast. <laughs> Either way,、uh, Mr. Kesting is a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belt and instructor in combat submission wrestling. But more importantly, the reason he's part of the Kaju Kembo series is because he's also a Kaju Kembo black belt. He talks all about his origins and how he transitioned from Kaju Kembo and got really into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and a little more about his background too. So I really hope you, show, you enjoy. <laughs> I really hope you enjoy this episode.、Um, if you want to learn no, more about supporting the show, really easy. If you're listening to this on iTunes, just jump on YouTube and subscribe to Social Jello with Angelo. And if you're already watching, just subscribe. Thanks. All right. Thanks for checking out Social Jello with Angelo. I'm here with Stephen Kesting. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. It,、uh, I respond to Stephen. Uh, Stefan, if you wanted to get really super nerdy,、uh, I guess it's a Germanic background, so it would probably be Stefan, but nobody does that. So we'll go with,、uh, we'll with Stefan. How about that? Stefan. Okay, Stefan.、Um, I guess for my listeners, this is part of the Kaju Kembo series, as I mentioned earlier in the introduction. And、uh, I normally don't do this, I usually just shoot right into my questions, but I really feel the need to introduce how I came across Stefan.、Um, I just got done fighting out in Japan. I had my, my first televised MMA fight in Japan. And I've been doing MMA for a while, amateur MMA. And,、um, and I lost. And I really didn't know what to do. So I've been doing jujitsu for a long time as part of my curriculum, but I felt like I needed something more than what I was doing in class because of time constraints. So I went online. And the first thing I came across was this thing called the Roadmap to Jiu Jitsu. Is that, that, is that what you called it, right? Was it the Roadmap to Jiu Jitsu? Yeah, it's, 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 I alternate between a roadmap and the roadmap. The I mean, roadmap. technically, it's called a roadmap because it's one of the ways to understand Jiu Jitsu. But then for shorthand, I often get sloppy and call it the roadmap to BJJ. <laughs> well, I came across his app and it really helped me. I mean, I've been doing jujitsu. Oh, here I am again with the bad dates.、Uh, I started doing jujitsu a long time ago back in California、uh, at my university with the Gracie Barra guys after I got my black belt in Kajakembo. But、uh, long story short, over a good portion of over 10 years, and most of the jujitsu I did was for Nogi, was for MMA. And、uh, also did a lot of stuff with、uh, wrestlers, mostly again focused on Kajakembo. Ground and pounds, that kind of thing. But、uh, the specific set of rules that I had to fight at for that one venue did not allow a ground and pound. So once we went to the ground, it had to be strictly jujitsu. And that's where I started realizing that I had a lot of holes in my game. I also, very old school pancreas or even old school shooto rules, really. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's really popular out here.、Mm-hmm. So when that happened, I, I realized that I had, a hole, I had holes in my game as far as jujitsu was concerned. And I also realized that I really didn't take the time to write anything down. All the stuff I knew was just like in my head, but I, and drills that my coaches would throw at me, but I never really sat down and even tried to teach the jujitsu stuff. I was always just more like, okay, Kaju Kembo style, throw him to the ground. This is a takedown. Here's your ground and pound.、Um, break his arm. You know, don't submit anyone, you know, how they work. So、mm-hmm. I never really thought about how I would even go across teaching the grappling part, stuff. So I was like, I came across your app and it really helped me kind of put together what I knew, along with I never did gi jujitsu. So your, your app is a lot of gi jujitsu stuff. <laughs>、mm-hmm. And I, it really kind of attracted me to jujitsu and it, it kind of started my jujitsu journey. And that's how I ended up finding Stefan. And then I did not know Stefan was a Kajakembo guy. I just came across your app and then later I jumped on your YouTube channel. And you were showing some technique, and you mentioned Sijo Adriano Imperato and your Kaju Kembo background, and my jaw just dropped because I was following you for a good year at that point. And I was like, he's a Kaju Kembo guy. No wonder I like this guy so much. 
So, so that's my, uh, I normally don't do this, but that's my four minute introduction for Stefan. Stefan. Well, it just goes to show how the <laughs> universe is a very small place, right? You're in Japan. I'm assuming you're an Italian background. We're connected through a Hawaiian martial art. And I'm a Canadian studying a Brazilian martial art, which originally came from Japan. And, you know, I, I'm German, Swiss, and Polish background, right? It's just a total united nation of martial arts here. And there there are no, you know, no one nation has a monopoly on the truth. No one nationality, no one culture knows it all, has it all, can own it all. So it's, it's a very interesting microcosm, you know, this connection here between your fighting and my fighting and us having these numerous connections on different levels. Yeah. And I mean, we make things more confusing. I'm, I'm Puerto Rican and my name is Angelo. Oh, I am so <laughs> sorry. All yeah, right. I get that a lot. I've had actually Italians get really excited when they meet me because I'm named right. Angelo. <laughs> but um, yeah, man, it's really interesting how martial arts connects people like that. Like, does it matter like how, where they're from? Even the beyond language barriers, like I, I train out here and when I first came out to Japan, I could barely speak any Japanese, but all my first group of friends were all martial artists and we just pretty much communicated through punching each other in the face and choking each other out. So it was, <laughs> it was, uh, Travel the world, meet interesting people, choke them out. Yeah. <laughs> so my question for you, man. So how did you get into Kajukenbo? I know a lot of maybe your listeners know your jujitsu stuff, but... The Kaju Kimbo background, how'd that come into play? Sure. Well, I, I think we can bring some value here, even if people don't train Kaju Kimbo, have no interest in Kaju Kimbo. It's just on the process of finding a martial arts school. See, I'd, I'd come up in judo originally and then lost the path and went off and did a deep dive into traditional Chinese kung fu. And now that's the whole doing kata or doing forms and doing forms and doing more forms and doing one person forms and doing two person forms and being afraid to ask questions and very rarely even being shown the applications of the movements. And then once a year, maybe you would spar, right? You'd put on this heavy headgear, this heavy chest and gear gloves, and you just try and beat the crap out of each other for, you know, a couple of two, three minute rounds, a couple of times a year. So there's a pretty big disconnect between what you were learning in the training hall and what you were actually expressing when you were fighting because shockingly as soon as somebody gets hit in the head all of their pretty training goes out the window you know forget about cat stance forget about forward stance it starts looking like bad boxing so i was i was kind of getting sick of the traditional chinese kung fu that i was training i was looking for other things and i just beginning to come in contact with the jeet kune do community right so they depending on the lineage, depending on the teacher, they do a little bit more sparring. You know, they, they pressure test their material. I'd never, ever really heard of Kaju Kembo. I guess I was aware it was an offshoot of Kempo, kind of, sort of. That's, that's what I thought. So, fortunately, I had an out, because I was moving cities. I moved to Montreal for uh, university. And so, what I did there was what I think everybody who is looking to get at a mar into a martial art should do. Because, yeah, the style is important, but just as important as the style is your teacher. Do you get along with your teacher? And just as important as the teacher are the training partners. I would argue, actually, that training partners are the most important component. But all three things are important. And so I wanted to sort of start with a fresh slate. And if you're going to train in the martial arts, seriously, you're going to spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours training, be spending money, you know, the uh, opportunity cost of stuff you could be doing instead of training martial arts is high, right? Even if you're paying a couple hundred bucks a month to train, imagine if you took all that time and were, I don't know, uh, flipping running shoes on Facebook marketplace, right? There's an opportunity cost <laughs> to training in addition to the cost of training, in addition to buying the keys, in addition to going to the hospital and getting fixed up. In addition to, you know, the blood, the sweat, and the tears. So it's an important decision. And I thought about this quite considerably. When I moved to Montreal, what am I going to do to find a new school? So I actually had a notebook dedicated to it. And I went and visited. I tried to visit every school that I could in Montreal. Kung Fu, Karate, Kickboxing, other systems. And I went around. I tried to try as many classes as I could. I tried to 
meet as many of the instructors as I could, watch as many of the classes as I could, and I kept notes. And that's actually an important thing because you're going to forget, right? After you've been going to a different class every day for a couple of weeks, you're not going to remember what that, I don't know, white crane kung fu school was like. You're not going to remember what that Chu Fendo school was like. You, you just will not remember. At least I won't because I have been hit in the head a whole number of times. And so I was going around school to school and I went into this Kajukembo place. It was above a, a magazine store on St. Catherine in Montreal. And I walked in and there was a you know, very strong odor of sweat and people were obviously training hard and the walls actually were caved in in multiple places. I guess where people had been sparring and people had run, been run into the walls and it's like, Oh, this looks really interesting. And I met Philip, Philip Jelina, uh, who's a very high ranking Kaju Campbell guy now, and also very heavily involved in the Filipino martial arts and are just really connected with him as well. So he was super irreverent about the martial arts. You know, he, there was very little hero worship going on, which I was completely sick of after five to seven years of hardcore Kung Fu training. I was sick of people being put up on pedestals, this whole too deadly to spar bullshit. Uh, and this whole, Oh, because you know, grandmaster Sifu says this, you should do it. No, if grandmaster Sifu says something, you should pay attention and think about it, but you shouldn't automatically do it. And if you are inclined to automatically accept uh, instructions from somebody who's highly ranked and somebody who's well-known. Well, I should give you my Bitcoin address and I'm telling you you should put, you know, five Bitcoin into my account and I promise I'll email you the secrets to, you know, I'll, I'll email you a 10th degree black belt and whatever martial art you want. So just for the highly susceptible people out there, I'm, I'm putting that out there because I'm just that kind of generous guy. Anyhow, so I, I really connected with Philip. I really connected with the training environment. At the time, I didn't really care what the style was. I was more interested in the training process. Uh, Dan Inosanto has made the point that a martial art is the techniques of the martial art, the training equipment of the martial art, and the training methods of the martial arts. So the fact that there were people here training themselves under pressure and doing things like sparring, and later we added the grappling as well, that was super attractive to me. Because you could have the best techniques in the world, and if you don't train them correctly, they're useless to you. As soon as you get punched in the face, it'll all go out the door. So yeah, that's how I how I met Philip, and it was a uh, it was a huge breath of fresh air. Not only was he an amazing teacher, he was also open to uh, people training with other people. I mean, I'll give you one more example, and then I'll shut up. At one point, I became interested in capoeira, the Brazilian martial art, and. I asked Philip about it and he says, no, I don't know anybody about it, but you know, we should talk to Bill Owens and here's some other resources. And if you want to bring in a capoeira guy to do a seminar at the school, I, I'm totally down. So there was none of this, oh my God, it's something I don't know. Therefore I, you can't even ask about it. It was something he didn't know much about and was very interested in finding out more about. And it was just such a departure from the traditionalist closed-minded mentality, uh, from traditional martial arts. And, you know, when you think about it, Kajukembo is a syncretic martial art that combined knowledge from different sources. And so that's built into the DNA of the art. And I hope it continues to be built in the DNA of the art in the future. Yeah. And I think that's what, um, it's really hard. Some people ask me, is Kajukembo a style? I guess I'll, I'm going to throw this question to you. Is Kajukembo a style? What's your thoughts about that? I guess it is in the sense that, uh, there are recognizable elements within it. If, you, if you're scrolling through YouTube videos or Instagram videos and you see some guys doing a technique, even if it's not a technique you know, it can be recognizable at times. You can go, oh, okay, there's probably uh, a, there's a stylistic element to it that looks familiar. And uh, so in that sense, perhaps it's a style. Um, in terms of it being a style, you know, here are the 633 techniques on this one scroll that's been written down in the 16th century by some semi-mythical, semi-divine founder, and it's been handed down from grandmaster to student, and, you know, now you're fortunate to find the only surviving 
grandmaster of the system teaching at the mini mall in Spokane, <laughs> Washington. <laughs> so it's not a style in that sense. Well, I, I would, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've had the experience of like looking at guys going, yeah, there's probably a Kaji Campbell background there. I mean, I didn't know, um, John Hackleman, one of your other guests. When I first started seeing some of his stuff, uh, I didn't know much about John's background and, you know, watching some of the training methods and of course the black geese are also a pretty big hint. Uh, and you know, the Hawaiian connection. Yeah. Was, okay. This is, this has got a similar flavor. It's got a familiar flavor to it. So, so maybe, maybe it's a style. Um, certainly there are some techniques that are reasonably common across the different um, subsystems or the different lineages I've seen. What, what do you say to that answer? What do you say to that question? What I like to say is, I, and I had to think about this because I had, uh, I was, I met with uh, YouTuber Ramsey Dewey out in China to do some training and he asked me, mm -hmm. he's like, can you show me a specific Kaju Kembo technique? I had to think long and hard about that because I was like, well, I can show you a Kaju Kembo technique from my school. But right. can I show you a Kajukembo technique that clearly defines Kajukembo? And I'm going to say Kajukembo is interesting because it still has some traditional components to it as a style, as in we do pass on information to our students. But each school is given the liberty to play mm -hmm. with the philosophy. Our acronym of Karate, Judo Jiu-Jitsu, Kempo, Kung Fu, and the Bow Boxing. And because of that element, yeah, there'll be some things. I mean, if, if we're following tradition, some of our forms from the either sometimes called the Pinyon set or the Palama set, well, you'll see some of that stuff in our self-defense. And in the self-defense, you can kind of see that philosophy in action. And I guess that's where you can kind of say there's a style element to it. But it's not a clear-cut style like, let's say, Taekwondo or mm -hmm. even Jiu-jitsu, for example. I mean, jiu-jitsu is very much jiu-jitsu. You know, once you see someone on the ground rolling and escaping guard, you know it. that's jiu-jitsu. So I guess that's where it's a little different from a I style. think there are a couple different things that create technical conformity. One is a very large governing body, right? Like Taekwondo, there's a couple of very large governing bodies saying, thou shalt teach this. Judo, very strong governing body. Thou shalt know thy kata in order to get promoted. Thou shalt know the gokyo. Thou, you know, here are the things you need to do. And it's a very strong top-down control. In jiu-jitsu, there's some of that. I mean, the IBJJF does control, say, um, the types of leg locks that are allowed on the ground. But I think there's actually more conformity there just out of necessity. Because if you're rolling on the ground day after day after day it starts looking pretty similar right there's the the, the basic rule set is it's a like a bottom-up evolution of people trying to survive under a certain rule set as opposed to you know one governing body although the ibjjf would love to say okay everybody on day one train this everybody on day two train this unfortunately you know then atos is telling his atos affiliates to do something different and uh, i don't know uh every organization has a different set of techniques. Um, <laughs> interestingly, I once trained in an organization that had a certain list of techniques for promotion to blue belt, but the head of that organization didn't know what they were and would had to go back to the guy who had written them up and go, okay, uh, tell me again, what is this? You know, what was technique 13 here? I'm, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That one. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, it, there can be top down effects. I mean, how's this? If we had boxing, right? A rule set that says you have to wear these gloves. You can't punch someone in the balls. You can hug and hit them a little bit, but you can't hug and hit them too much. You know, basically the, the, the boxing rule set and you put somebody from as diverse backgrounds as you possibly could. I don't know, capoeira and Shaolin Kung Fu. And you put them in the ring and you let them fight and you let them go away and you let them fight, let them go away and you let them fight. And you bring in another guy who's Wing Chun, you bring in another guy who's Goju Ryu, and you bring in another guy who's, I don't know, uh, just some street fighter, it's going to converge pretty quickly. It's going to end up looking like boxing because people don't like to get hit in the head, so they sooner or later figure out that their hands should be up. 
right? They sooner or later figure out that they shouldn't stand completely square. Okay, sooner or later figure the chin should be down, that maybe moving your feet is occasionally is a good idea. So the in some cases the rule set drives what in martial art how a martial art is expressed. And I guess that's where the methods come from, right? So I come from the uh I come from the Abad method of Kajukembo. And it's still Kajukembo, but there's the method. And I guess I guess that's more of I guess that's more of a grammatical semantics thing, right? Like you're talking about boxing. And there's a big difference between the way Mike Tyson boxes and Floyd sure. Mayweather, right? So like even sure. then, there's these you have the style of boxing, but within the boxing you have these methods. And I guess I guess maybe that's semantics, right? The difference between what we would say was style and method or approach. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe method is how you teach your students, right? If the Floyd Mayweather, if if uh, Mike Tyson uh, was teaching a whole bunch of students, right? He opened a Mike Tyson's boxer size franchise. I'm pretty sure that what he would teach them would look a lot like what he was doing under Angelo Dundee, you know, bob and weave, lots of hard hooks, <laughs> and would look not very much like Prince Nassim or, you know, some other boxer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the Mike Tyson method would be what he passes on to his students. And I, I, I haven't really thought much about this. I'm just riffing here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think, that's, I think that's an important distinction to make especially because the people listening to this yeah we're going to have a lot of kajakembo people listening to it because that's the majority of the people but there's also the people that have no idea i'm sure you a lot of your folks may have no clue what kajakembo is <laughs> and um that's why i made this series was so people can kind of think about not just not just martial arts in general but how like kajakembo has always kind of been around but never really in the forefront and like of anything, but this is kind of one of the reasons that kind of comes behind that. No. So you're doing the Lord's work. Yeah, yeah, I guess I've had some people say that. It's it's more. Uh, it's been fun just learning and kind of researching Good. and learning myself too. So when did you get your black belt? I got my black belt in the early '90s. So I started training in the uh, with Philip in Kajukembo in the early uh, in the early to mid '80s, and then. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm pretty terrible with dates, so I, I got in the early '90s, and then I moved out to uh, the West Coast, and that's when uh, you know I taught Kajukembo for a bit, and then started getting more and more, I, more and more into the whole grappling scene, the more man hugging and pajama wrestling aspect of things. <laughs> so when did so you did mention you started doing some teaching? When did you start teaching? Oh boy, you still. You're asking me about dates again. <laughs> I taught, I want to say, 92, 93, 94. Okay. And it was a very, uh, very, very, very serious club. I rented some space from a Japanese language daycare. So I taught in the evenings there. So we would move all the little children's chairs to one side <laughs> and get out some mats. And, uh, you know, there would be paper, yellow paper cutout bumblebees on the walls. And uh, we'd train hard, but uh, it was it's kind of funny to do it in that environment with you know kids' toys all over the place. It, uh, I was I was going to grad school at the time, and I wasn't really uh, serious about running it for profit. I was just running it for as having a, a place to train, really. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that that was a, a fun little exercise while it lasted, and I I'm filled with nostalgia every time I drive by that place because it's still there. <laughs> That's awesome. And that was so you uh, you started teaching. Yeah, that was called that was Kaj- Kajukembo hmm. with you know, and I was beginning to add more of the Jew element to it at that point. Again, uh, to sing Philip's praises, when the Gracie in Action uh, tapes came out, right? So these are the tapes in the mid to late '80s, which you know cherry picked video footage of the Gracies beating up karate guys, and the Gracies beating up kung fu guys, and the Gracies beating up luta livre guys, and Hickson beating up Zulu and all that good stuff. Um, it, it became clear very quickly that you needed to have some kind of grappling. Again, the rule system drives it. If you're just boxing, you don't need grappling because you get to the clinch and you get broken up. Right. So when we used to do the sparring in Kajukembo, it was sort of resembled point karate mixed with kickboxing. And that's probably a pretty fair way to express it, depending on how, how hard we were going. If we're going more of a, a tag-style, point-based system, again, 
it's the rule system driving the expression of the martial arts. If if we've got a game where if I tag you with a, a chop or I tag you with a, a sidekick or I tag you with a back fist and it's all the same, we're going to end up turned sideways to each other and doing something that looks like tournament karate or maybe taekwondo. But if now we start incorporating power where you can actually hit the guy, most of the time, Steve Wonderboy Thompson notwithstanding, you end up more square to your opponent and ends up looking a lot more like tie boxing or kickboxing because you're actually trying to put some power behind those damn shots because just lightly tagging somebody uh, with a back fist isn't a good trade if they then land you know, a, a heavy leg kick to your thigh yeah. and you can't move your leg anymore. Yeah. So the rules drive the art. But it became clear that one big area of sort of myopia, one area that we weren't looking at was what happens after the clinch. What happens even if it's not a skilled takedown? What happens if you get to the clinch and you trip? And if you let two people clinch for long enough, eventually probably one of them will trip and you'll end up on the ground or you get knocked down. And, and, uh, I remember I'm, not going to mention any names to protect the innocent <laughs> other than uh, it was Adriano Imperato was teaching a seminar. So CJ Imperato is teaching a seminar and he came up with a bunch of black belts and one of the black belts ended up having words with one of the seminar participants and this quickly turned into a fight and, uh, you know, uh, CJ liked a good fight. So he's there egging them <laughs> on essentially. <laughs> And they're fighting and everyone's like, oh my, oh my God, the black belt's going to kill him. The black belt's going to kill him. And as Philip pointed out, the other guy had a bit of a boxing background and was actually landing more punches. And then eventually the black belt got fed up and kind of shot in for a very crappy tackle. And they ended up on the ground like, okay, break it up, break it up, break it up. So it's interesting that that's where the fight stopped, right? It, uh, it didn't go on. Had it gone on. I'm guessing both parties would have been at a loss. So anyhow, my point is there was a myopia there. Again, Philip was open to us staying after class and exploring this. Initially, all we knew was that it was better to be on top than on bottom. And if you're on top, you should try and get to this thing called the mount. Now we were pulling hair. We were eye gouging. We were simulating biting. We were trying to submit the guy by bending their fingers backwards. Uh, and so we didn't really know what we were doing. The training method wasn't fully fleshed out yet, but it was still time on the ground. It was still time, have, you know, de at least desensitizing ourselves to that range. And I think that's actually a huge thing for somebody new to the ground. The first lesson isn't armbar from the guard. The first lesson isn't escape from the mount. The first lesson is you're on the ground. Don't panic. Yeah. Right. Like don't, the other guy might beat the crap out of you. Don't beat the crap out of yourself first. And if, if you panic, so just desensing, desensitizing ourselves to that element of panic was incredibly valuable. Um, and, uh, uh, so that, that worked well. And then as time went along, we started incorporating more of the, uh, the traditional Japanese jujitsu, some of the wrestling, uh, Danny Nasanto showed us some basic, uh, shuto, some shoot wrestling. And so we started incorporating that and trying to reverse engineer the whole thing. So that was the, the genesis of you know, the, the, the grappling, adding more of the grappling in. Wow. Yeah, man, it's interesting that you mentioned the, uh, the limited time on the ground because, um, I mean, like you mentioned, like we do have the Jew for Judo, Jiu-Jitsu, yep. and Kajikembo. And in my school, we were, uh, I, I was brought up in a rougher area of San Diego called Escondido. There was a lot of, gang violence um i was jumped a few times and that's what brought me into kajakambo so a lot of the guys that came to our school came from the same area so we were all looking to defend ourselves from multiple opponents so our ground game essentially mm. was to get back up and if you were the person on the top finish as fast as you can because fair enough because if you have other guys getting ready to jump you can't spend too much time on the ground but so to do this, he said, okay, it's cool. My, or again, our, being open, my, uh, my Sifu now 
now Professor Ronnie Sugiri, he always told us, okay, realistically, you probably have about, I don't know, 20 to 30 seconds to, to mangle the person on the ground if you're the person on the top. Or if you're the person who got taken down, you have about 20 to 30 seconds to sweep and get back up before his friends come in and start kicking you on the ground. So I'm going to allow you 20 to 30 seconds on the ground. And we did that for our continuous sparring. So, mm-hmm. so of course, we had the point stuff that we'd get ready for tournaments with. And we had the continuous sparring that we did for the tournaments. But when we were just no tournaments coming up, let's just do some continuous for, for Kajukambo. That's where we started bringing in more of the... Uh, that's that was his approach to the grappling. We got we had a wrestling coach come in from a local high school, and he showed us how to sprawl, how to double leg, how to single leg, um, how to sweep, how to how to bridge, to essentially get back up. Mm-hmm. So our our mentality was always okay. Hey, someone tries to go for a single leg, sprawl, you know, hammer fist him in the back of the neck, and uh, and just go out, go to town. And if they take you down bridge get them off you as quickly as possible get back on your feet or if you can if you're going to go for it well you know if you're going to go for a submission you have to submit them within 20 seconds so we like if you're going to go for a quick choke then quickly sweep take their back and start choking mostly we like to go for arm bars though because we figured on the street we want to break their arm before we get back up that way they have one less thing to hit us with so it was a lot of that <laughs> if that mm-hmm. makes any sense <laughs> yeah, yeah. certainly one way to to skin the cat the counter argument, and I, I'm not, I am undecided on this, but the counter argument to this is who's got the most knockout power with their fists? It'd be boxers, obviously, right? Boxers, yeah. if you get in a fight with a boxer, you got to, who's somewhat your weight or even heavier than you, you've really got to worry about getting knocked out. Yet, boxers don't train to knock out their sparring partners in the first 10 to 20 seconds. Right, then boxers spend round after round after round after round sparring. They're training for the long match, and then if they have to, they can dial the intensity up to eleven and go for the quick knockout on the street. And they'll probably knock the other guy out, or if if if, if it goes according to plan anyway. So the training method of boxing isn't to train for the twenty second uh, for the twenty second knockout. Similarly, in order to get good enough at grappling to get up at will, I'm going to argue that you're going to need to spend more time on the ground because once you, in order to develop mastery of a range, you need to spend time in the range. The counter counter example there is that if you get too comfortable on the ground and this is your, this is your sweet spot and you never think about the self-defense implications of it, you could get too comfortable on the ground. You know, oh, well, I've stabilized side control. Okay, I'm just going to hold you here until you get tired. And then kaboom, you get hit in the head. So I think if if you're training grappling for self-defense, I would argue that optimally you would do quite long sessions on the ground. And then occasionally, just to just to get the road, it's like road work, right? You, you're putting in mile after mile after mile. Again, marathon runners are, are training. 42 kilometers but in average training week they might put in 150 kilometers 200 kilometers week after week after week they're doing that just to build up their mileage so i would argue if you're if your focus is 100 defense at least half of your training should be on the ground should be longer rounds just to get the time in just to develop the sensitivity develop the technique then you sprinkle in things like, uh, you know, you only have 10 seconds on the ground. One guy's trying to hold the other guy down. The other guy's only job is to get up. And that's how we used to train in MMA as well, right? I'd be training with guys who were fighting in the UFC and in pride. They'd start in the closed guard. They'd have me in their closed guard. My only goal would be to hold them down, hold them down, hold them down, and hit them if I could. Their only goal would be to get back up to their feet. Because they were very, very skilled grapplers, they could get up to their feet. You know, it would take some work, but that is how we isolated that. We did a little bit of that, and a little bit of that goes a long way. Again, for self-defense, I like what Burton Richardson preaches with having people produce weapons <laughs> halfway through the grappling round, right? Like, yeah, uh, I have, I remember uh, training, I think I was a blue belt. 
Yeah, I was a blue belt and I was training in jujitsu. And I'd just come back from a Danny Nosanto seminar and a guy came up to me kind of mockingly goes, yeah, well, what would those C-Lot guys do to get out of a triangle choke? So yeah, I'll show you. Let me just get changed here because I was in my street clothes. So I put on my gi, but in my gi bag, I had this little blunt metal karambit. So I hid that in my lapel. I let the other guy put a triangle choke on. I pulled out the karambit and I, you know, cut his fake cut his femoral artery, fake cut his other femoral artery, fake cut his subclavian artery, went for his brachial artery, went for his other brachial artery, you know, cut open his stomach. And he just, it took him a good 15, 20 seconds to figure out what was going on. But that honestly would be the Indonesian Salat solution to being caught in a triangle choke. And so I think occasionally, if you're doing jujitsu and you want to make it a little bit more self-defense oriented, occasionally grapple with weapons. Be careful though, because the eyes can really get injured there. Occasionally grapple with time limits on the ground. Occasionally grapple with conflicting objectives. My objective is to hold you down. Your objective is to get up. Or conversely, you know, I'm in mount and you're on the bottom of mount, but you see your buddies coming. Your job is to hold me there. And my job is to get up because you know you're in a terrible position. But if you just hang on to me for another 10 seconds, this guy's going to run up with a baseball bat and club me. Uh, also, you know, multiple attacker training on the ground really sucks, but it's possible. <laughs> yeah, it it's also really dangerous <laughs> because you can end up in a situation where all of your arm, all of your tapping limbs are tied up. And it's just like those cop pylons when you're know, 10 cops pile onto a suspect and they're trying to bend an arm a different way. Yep. Uh, the guy might not even be able to talk. There's so much weight on him. He might be panicking. It just hurts. He doesn't know why it's hurting. And you end up with broken bones because people are reefing on you. So yeah, two-on-one grappling sucks, but it can do is doable. Uh, it's definitely doable against lesser experienced people. I'd say it's actually easier than doing kickboxing sparring against two people at once given that you're better than the other people in both those situations. Yeah. Things two, get, two on one, two, two on, on one, one kickboxing yeah. is yeah. exhausting. It is. It, it get, things start getting hairy. Two on one doable. Things get really hairy once you have three. Once you get to three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what things get. You better have a weapon. That, that's what things get. In, in, the, in, those, in those kind of circumstances, sparring circumstances, that's when things get really hairy. Um, mm -hmm. I always say it, at, at that point, it's not really about trying to win as much as it is trying to survive and, and situation matters. But I think this 100%. Kind of it's about, uh, um, you know, and that's, that's actually something that should be trained more in, uh, in stand-up self-defense. I would say that's at least the systems of Kaju Kembo that I've trained, the, uh, at least the systems of Kaju Kembo I've trained, there's always been sort of a technique. Okay. We're doing punch set one. We're doing, I don't know, basics three or we're doing, you know, the alphabet we're doing something like that but it's never like the guy gets into a fighting stance you turn around and sprint the other way <laughs> or uh, <laughs> we actually we actually invented that as a drill right we would come in we'd attack but if the guy put his hand into his uh you know if the guy's hands disappeared behind his body if the guy's hands disappeared into the folds of his gi you would run because you'd assume a weapon or you'd close the distance very very quickly right the uh um including weapon awareness in, in training is really good. Even if you're just doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu for, uh, for, for sport, you're doing jiu-jitsu hundred percent for sport. I think a couple times a year, you should let the other guy put on bag gloves and try and punch you in the head at 50% and learn to defend it, learn to adjust whatever crazy ass guard you're using to work in sort of an MMA self-defense type of environment. And once or twice a year, try grappling with a stick in the mix. Try grappling with a rubber knife in the mix and see what happens. And the if nothing else, the adrenaline spike is quite uh, quite entertaining. And I think you're bringing up a, a really good point. I, I didn't have this in my notes, but I'm glad we're going here. This whole thing between sport versus self-defense, right? Um, like I mentioned, the whole reason I started honing in more on the jujitsu was when I started transitioning more into the sport element of MMA. I spent most of my time preparing to fight. And I've been, I've been in a lot of street fights. I've been, well, I don't know if I'm ashamed or, or proud of the drunken brawls I got into as I was, when I was younger. <laughs> I, I'm sure my wife is ashamed. 
mm-hmm. but um, when you know when I was younger, um, you know I, I scrapped. I was in a rough neighborhood. I would scrap. I would I'd start off scrapping out of fear, and after a while, I'd start scrapping for fun. And I, mean, I, w- I wouldn't do that. I don't recommend doing that type for anyone. I would never do that ever again. But one of the things I found, even when I started scrapping for fun, is uh, once I picked up, once I started doing Kajukembo and I started scrapping, and I wouldn't, if someone says they wanted to scrap, it would start off a lot of posturing, and I would just de-escalate and be like, hey, I don't, I don't want to fight you out of anger, but if you want to scrap, like, I do enjoy a good fight. How about we just have some fun and fight? And that's how I kind of got into it. And what I found out in those situations is, the difference between fighting someone who's trained and untrained is huge. And it kind of gave me this false set of confidence that because I was pretty good at scrapping, that somehow I would be good at MMA. And, I mean, I did tournament fighting. I did one MMA tournament with some interesting rules, and I got second place, and then I didn't fight for a very long time. I stopped competing, and then I came back and started doing MMA in Japan. And what I realized in that long break where I stopped competing, I came back to do MMA in Japan, and it was a very fixed rule set with the jiu-jitsu. What I realized was there's a huge difference between fighting someone, even back then, the most of the guys I fought at that MMA tournament were all strikers. There wasn't that many grapplers in the mix. Um, there's a big difference between fighting someone who's really prepared and is trying to become a professional fighter versus your everyday open martial arts tournament. Like, there's a huge difference in the level of competition and how they approach things. And that's kind of where I want to say like that difference between training for a sport and self-defense. Like There's different aspects to it, but definitely those people that really hone in to become champions of a sport that's a completely different kind of person than the kind of guy that you might end up in a drunken brawl with or the kind of people that might try to jump you. They're, they're both dangerous, but that person that's training to be, that's doing it for the sport, that's really trying to become a champion, that's really trying to become a martial artist, is a much bigger challenge than your average Joe on the street, I guess. That's what I'm trying to get at. I would 100% agree. The The first thing to consider when you're thinking fighting some tough guy who enjoys scrapping versus fighting some guy who's doing this with a goal of being a champion is physical fitness, right? I, there are a ton of weekend warriors out there who go and like to throw down, but not very many of them are out at four o'clock in the morning or five o'clock in the morning running or on the treadmill doing sprints or doing crazy ass weight training circuits. And so when you're more than 20 seconds into it, 30 seconds into it, 40 seconds into it, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Fatigue makes idiots of us all. And fatigue makes stumbling, bumbling, uncoordinated, drunken, as if you're drunk, physical morons of us all. So right off the bat, somebody who's training for a high level of jujitsu competition, high level of kickboxing competition, high level of MMA competition, they're much more likely to be fit because they're training for those three five-minute rounds, those five five-minute rounds, those 10, you know, three-minute rounds, whatever it is, they have to prepare worst-case scenario. And so they're more likely to be doing the conditioning. And, you know, if, let's say I'm fighting for my life. That fighting for my life might have been preceded by my trying to run away for three blocks, but you know what? You're faster and you finally caught me. So now I've essentially run, you know, 800 meters or 400 meters as fast as I can. And now I got to fight. So that's that's one very significant difference. Another is just the, the depth of knowledge and the intensity that that brings to the training. Right. I mean, there's people who like scrapping and there's people who train for scrapping. But they're probably not training as much as some guy who's going, you know, I'm going to fly to Los Angeles this year and compete in the world championships. I'm going to fly to Thailand and I want to do five amateur fights in Thailand against high-level Thai boxers. The <laughs> Knowing that you're going to be shot in the morning focuses the mind wonderfully. Knowing that you've got a fight coming up or a competition or a tournament coming up 
two months from now focuses your training wonderfully as well. Uh, that's actually one of the biggest benefits of competing when it comes to developing your skill level, because you're like, I don't want to look like an idiot. I'm going to train harder. I'm going to pick better sparring partners. I'm going to do longer rounds. I'm going to do whatever it takes. So it sharpens the training as well. And I mean, finally, and probably not finally, but my final point here <laughs> is that what percentage of fights between adult males, say over the age of 18, involve alcohol? A huge number of them, right? I, I don't know what the numbers are. I'm guessing 80 to 90%. It's pretty rare for two sober individuals to get out and start scrapping with, with each other outside of the realm of maybe a road rage incident. So by far, the average number... The number of fights that go down an average week in North America or anywhere in the world, most of them are drunken brawls. And I'd like to hope, although it's not always borne out by reality, thank you, Conor McGregor, that most <laughs> professional athletes are at least trying to avoid that scene, right? They're not trying to drink as much, you know, and then, you know, there certainly are some notable exceptions to athletes who are able to consume very large amounts of alcohol and other drugs and continue to compete. But by and large, I'd say it's a sort of a healthier living crowd yeah and, I think and, what, and thus less likely to be in that scenario in the first place and, and i'm you know i'm mostly kind of looking at it from all perspectives anything that i found when i started going because like i said i originally got into kaja kembo for self-defense alone and then i ended up on this path of semi-pro fighting at some points and televised sure. events and stuff it wasn't my it was never my plan um but it ended up becoming that, and I changed as a person because of it. But what kind of happened was, like, what I realized when I got more into the sports side of it was really a lot of the stuff that had to do with the self-defense, those are really, I mean, I was in a dangerous neighborhood, yes. But still, a lot of the self-defense stuff can be avoided. Like, when you're training for self-defense scenarios, a lot of those scenarios can be avoided, like you mentioned, by not putting yourself in those situations where you'd have to use the techniques in the first place. So, like, when you start going more, this is my critique of self-defense, of only so, in, I know I'm probably going to get some, some shit about this, but I'll throw it out there. My critique of only training only for self-defense, only street, is after a while, you might, there might not be a difference between what you're doing and what a renaissance fair uh knight in shiny armor where they put yeah. the armor on and start going at it just because they want to go over this scenario like you, you might actually be in the same kind of thing where you're you're practicing for one something. step above larping <laughs> yeah you're well yeah yeah you're just one step away from cosplay so like really what's happening is yeah. <laughs> you're not really you're trading for something that most likely is not going to happen especially the older you get um i live in japan i mean it's not i don't live in that dangerous neighborhood anymore yeah. So like, there's really no, re I still train it. I, I still like it. It's, it's fun. I see it for what it is, which is mostly okay. now development as a martial artist, but I don't, I've really leaned away from being the kind of instructor that's like, well, on the street, right? <laughs> Starting the conversation well, on the street. How about this? How about this? <laughs> on the street, you would eye gouge. On the street, you would punch. On the street, you would kick. On the street, you would bite. On the street, you would punch the groin. Let's say that that's true. Let's say that that's your street repertoire. The difficulty is not in the technique. The difficulty is in the delivery system. Your, your training that you're doing is mostly the missile that carries the warhead. And the actual warhead that lands and explodes is a small component of it. What I mean by that is this. How many times in his entire boxing career did Mike Tyson practice bobbing and weaving, bobbing and weaving, getting in close, clinching, and then biting someone's ear off. I'm going to suggest he never trained that once. Never once did Angelo Dundee hold a fake ear up on a focus mitt and say, okay, bob and weave, bob and weave, clinch, and bite. Never. Because that is the, that's the warhead. The, the bite is the, the final weapon. The hard part of delivering any weapon is the delivery system. It's getting it from here to there. So it's the ability to use footwork to get in close. It's the ability to clinch up. And from that clinch, you could punch. From that clinch, you could elbow. From that clinch, you could knee. 
From that clinch, you can move into Greco, take the guy down. Or from that clinch, you can bite. The delivery system is what you should spend most of your time training. So say you're training jiu-jitsu. You're trying to get to mount, right? You're trying to uh, either say you're starting on the bottom. You're trying to put, keep yourself in a good position, not let the guy pass, sweep, end up in side mount, somehow transition to mount. It's pretty easy to beat the crap out of someone when you're in the mount. Yes, you should train it, but that's, that's the actual warhead. The delivery system is getting to mount in the first place. So it's reasonably easy to adapt the mount to the street. But if you're always going, man, I just trained for the street, you're <laughs> never going to put in the rounds to develop the delivery system, which is maneuvering through the basic positions to instinctively and easily and in a controlled manner, end up there again and again and again. So 80% of your training should be delivery systems. If you're, you know, uh, some people don't like training stick fighting. You know how the dog brothers train full contact stick fighting with fencing helmets, hockey mitts, or even smaller mitts and then sticks. I've, I've done a lot of that sparring against several of the dog brothers. People, some Kali guys don't like this. Well, what if that was a blade? Then a, a little tick would, uh, you know, sever your artery. And it's true. But I'm going to argue that the learning to deal, the delivery system is under pressure when you're soaked with adrenaline to actually swing that stick and put it roughly where you want to, to put it. Then you can tweak that a little bit. Say, okay, if this was a knife, if this was a sword, if this was a spear, we would change it this way and that way. And we can use a shock knife to simulate, you know, <laughs> extreme damage when you, when you get touched. But most of the training is the delivery system, not the warhead. Similarly, on the street, I would never punch someone in the nose. I would just gouge their eyes out. <laughs> All right, great. The delivery system is me extending my hand from somewhere near my body to somewhere near your face. Now, at the end of that, I can put a fist. I can put, you know, a different style of making a fist. I can use the old Emperado method style of fist. I can use a regular method of fist. I can use an ox hand. I can use a palm heel strike. I can use an eye gouge. I can put a thumb in your eye. It doesn't matter. Chuck Liddell managed to put a whole lot of fingers accidentally into people's eyes, you know, in many fights in a row, not because he'd done a ton of training for eye gouging, but because he was really good at punching. Then the delivery system's in place. We just had to modify the, the, uh, the warhead a little bit. So spending majority of your time training how to get to a position, how to get to a position where your fist is close to your shoulder and put that hand close to my face or where you're on the bottom and through jujitsu magic, you end up on top and sitting on top of me. That should be the majority of your training. Then we should spend a little bit of time going, okay, in the street, how would you actually try and punch my nose, you know, into my skull? How would you eye gouge me if you were here? How would you bite me here? But, you know, if, if we spend all our time training that, the only way we can do that and, and not all die or not all end up crippled or disfigured is with LARPing type stuff. Well, you would do this and then hypothetically <laughs> I would counter it by using the sliding monkey groin grabbing technique and then you would counter counter that with, and we end up in theoretical land. And, yeah. And before you know it, guys can't fight. Yeah. No, that's, that's what ends up happening. That's what it's happening. And again, right? Martial arts is all about balance, trying to find the balance between your training. And there is the, a really strong argument for saying that the more you focus on the conditioning elements, the sport elements of your martial arts as a martial artist will only make you stronger. And the stronger you are, the better you'll be at in the other categories. For sure. It, it can be, for sure, I don't think either of us would disagree that you could get myopic if you had never, ever trained with the idea of like, oh my God, the guy's friends could be coming or, oh my God, a knife could appear or, oh my God, uh, you know, what about the legal aspects of all this? Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's a really big one. That's the yeah. biggest one. My actually. entire system is based on picking the guy, you know, curb stomping. I've got 12, you know, I've got curb stomp sets, curb stomp one, curb stomp two. 
Uh, <laughs> 12 ways to, you know, there must be 50 ways to leave your lover. There must be 12 ways to curb stomp a guy. Yeah, well, you might win the fight, but um, despite the old Kajikambo saying, it's better to be uh, judged by 12 than carried by six. H- how about neither? You know, how about, <laughs> that's a false dichotomy, I'm going to argue, but at least most of the time. Yeah, that's true. No, that's one of the, that's one of the things that, that's, an, that's another really big part about the self-defense stuff is, um, are the legal implications mm-hmm. that, that people, you know, may or Here's may something that about. a lot of people don't take into account. How many martial arts systems are essentially punching and kicking based? Most of them, I would say. And if by some act of God, you've, you've done your, um, your, I don't know, your defendo training and you move in and you uppercut the guy just perfectly and you knock him out. Well, that's probably not the punch that's going to land you in jail for up to, I think 17 years is the longest that I've seen, but I haven't followed this too actively. And what's going to end you up in jail is not the punch. It's when he falls down and instead of your fist hitting him, it's the planet hitting him. Mm-hmm. It's, and in, no matter how much you've conditioned your fist, your fist isn't as hard as a sidewalk. Mm-hmm. It's that second hit of the guy landing on the ground and, and concussing himself and potentially dying that has resulted in a whole bunch of very severe lawsuits and major jail time in many different countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Canada for sure, United States for sure, United Kingdom for sure. And I thought there was a case in Australia as well. Yeah. So no, I have... um. I'm not going to mention you knock the guy out. No, we should actually be no, training. You know what? Knock the guy out and then grab him and you, control the ball. Yeah, you don't. You don't even have. Like you said, you don't have to knock him out. You don't have to hit him that hard. Um, without naming any names, I, I have a I have a friend who ended up um, with some really serious assault charges off a jab. He jabbed mm-hmm. the person was assaulting his girlfriend. He stepped in, um, took him off the girlfriend. He took a swing at him. And he just bobbed and weaved and j- got ready for a jab straight. And just the jab knocked the guy off balance. He tripped off the curb, hit his head, and you know ended up in the hospital. And there was a bunch of lo- bunch of legal ramifications that came afterwards. And luckily, he got out of that by the skin of his teeth. But I was imagine he was a serious, few, serious. a little bit poorer and a whole lot more stressed out by the end of that. Oh yeah, there was a <laughs> yes, definitely. There was, that was an alpha jab. That, that, that's like the biggest thing. It wasn't even a hard hit. It was just a jab. So yeah, the legal implications are, are huge. So before I end anything, there's a few things I want to ask you. Uh, when did you start making YouTube videos? How did that even kind of come about? Oh, that started in 2006. I actually have a date that I can remember now, maybe because it's not so long ago. <laughs> uh and it was a huge debate. Like, do I put stuff that I, I'm selling? Because it was a, a excerpt from one of my instructionals. It was the dynamic half guard or the dynamic butterfly guard. One of those two. And it's like, do I really want to release any of this stuff for free? If I release it for free, then nobody will want to buy it. And that's just idiotic, right? That you could, the more you show people, uh, the more they'll know of you, right? Like any album any music album that you buy now or, or stream, you can get on YouTube as well. So yeah, it was 2006. I was lucky that I was uh, one of the earlier people into it and I just never really stopped. And, uh, I, I get a lot of my questions from, from people who, uh, who ask, right? So then that's a lot of ideas for questions. It also keeps me grounded in what, you know, as opposed to some esoteric aspect of what, whether one black belt uses the thumb position here, you know, it's like some dude asking, Hey, what is the turtle? What is the turtle? Okay. Well, let's go back a few steps here. And uh, what is side mount? What is the mount? Cause most people starting out are new and most people starting out are, are confused and intimidated. And if I can help those people, they'll get around to the black belt questions eventually. And I noticed, um, this kind of brings me to another question I was going to ask you. I saw a video about how people, I mean, I'm sure you got a lot of, you got a lot of people asking you questions. You probably have a lot of trolls too. And you were talking about in the video, you, you, sh- you were bringing attention to another video that you made about escaping guard and how someone criticized that if you did it this way, you mm-hmm. get caught in the triangle. And, and then you talked about how any technique, if you're not looking at the principle, if you're just looking at the technique 
as a technique, any technique can be ineffective. And you got up and started talking about how a jab, you can throw a jab and there's so many holes in the jab. You know, you can hit a guy here, you can hit a guy there. But in reality, if you're good at throwing a jab, there's a lot of stuff that you can use the jab for. It's not about the technique, it's about the principle. So how do you handle online critics and trolls? Like, I'm sure you get a lot of that, right? Yeah, a fair amount. Uh, I'm going to answer the other implied question first. Any technique has holes. Any technique has a counter. And you know this because in the Darwinian evolution of MMA, let's say that there was a magic technique that there was no counter to. I don't know. Let's say the jump spinning axe knee. I'm making that up. There is no jump spinning axe <laughs> knee yet. The jump spinning axe knee is unstoppable. Well, then everyone would only use the jump spinning axe knee because nobody would want to lose. So it'd be a race to the jump spinning axe knee. There is no technique like this. Every technique has openings, every technique exposes something. Uh, yeah, and like you said, if I throw a jab at you and then hold my hand out there, you could come up with 85 different counters. But hopefully, you know, it's pretty hard to pull off most of them because I'm snapping the jab out and bringing it back. So it, it, if you take a look at something in isolation, it's easy to pick it apart. And in the case of jiu-jitsu and grappling, a lot of it is weight distribution. Man, that's when I'm learning something and I see somebody show a technique, I often go to them and say, can you do that to me just so I can feel it? And I'm a very kinesthetic learner. So if I can feel it being done, like, oh, his weight, his weight's here. It doesn't, it looks like I could sit up, but I can't sit up at all. So that's, that's the first question. How do I deal with trolls? Mostly I ignore them. Uh, mostly I, I've got, fortunate. I've got a lot of uh, friends or followers or dedicated fans. And they usually jump on that guy long before I can. However... Just to combine a couple of themes, the theme of YouTube, uh, the theme of turtle sweeps, the theme of the turtle position, the theme of trolls, I got, there was this one guy bugging me, you know, um, hey master, can you send me pictures of your feet? Hey, I'd like to, uh, you know, sniff your toes. I'd like to, you know, and I just finally got sick and tired of that and blocked him on Instagram. But fortunately, I did screenshots of that video, of those messages. So I dedicated one of my most recent videos, which is called Turtle Sweeps, and it's available on YouTube now. If you search for Stefan Kesting Turtle Sweeps, you can see me dedicating it to him. And I may have included his name and his Instagram handle, and that I may have blurred out my feet for the whole rest of the video. So that <laughs> was, uh, I thank him very much for that opportunity, and I look forward to the next uh, moron who, uh, who's just too obnoxious and too persistent. Because um, I think got this, are you familiar with, the uh, Twitter account, the Instagram account, McDojo Life? Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. so the McDojo Life guy kept on getting threatening death, well, threatening death threats from Sistema and from ninjutsu practitioners. <laughs> and then he would just publish. He would just, like, screen capture and publish them, and then those stopped. So I was uh, channeling Mr. McDojo Life, which is a fantastic account everyone should follow. So, I guess, fast-fire question. What are your thoughts on Gi... And no gi. If you're dedicated to compete in just one or the other, you can make an argument to only train one or the other. If you want to be a well-rounded grappler, you should do both. If you're interested in self-defense, you should do both. Now, you don't have to do them 50-50 because good grappling is good grappling. And most of it, 80%, 90% of it should translate reasonably well. So if you spend 80 or 90% of your time in the gi, Spend some of your time in nogi, just like we were talking about with occasionally training with a knife, occasionally training against strikes, occasionally training, closing the distance. So you're not completely a deer in the headlights the second that, you know, the gi comes off or you end up going to a class, you thought it'd be gi and all of a sudden it's nogi and oh my God, you have no idea where to grab other than the two sleeves and the lapel. So if you spend 10% of your time, 20% of your time training in the other discipline, you should be covered for self-defense because in the self-defense situation, it could be summertime. Some crazy guy could attack you naked. Some crazy guy could attack you wearing a Speedo. Some crazy guy could attack you wearing a parka, right? If, if somebody attacks me and they're wearing clothes, damn right I'm going to grab the clothes. I'd be an idiot not to. I'm, I'm Canadian. 
Look at hockey. Hockey fighting is the fine art of pulling someone's jersey over their head and punching them in the head. They're they're using gi fighting. So, yeah, uh, you, you want to train. If your emphasis is self-defense, you want to do a little bit of both. And 80% of what you learn in one can be translated to the other. All right. So walkaway points. Um, grab their shirt, Canadian-style uppercut. Uh, spinning, spinning, what was that? The spinning 360 oh, axe the, kick, knee kick is the best for MMA. Everyone 100%. should be learning that. <laughs> well, it was Stephen, I, Stephen, Stephen, um, I really want to thank you for taking your time to do this interview. Um, is there anything you want to promote or anything you want to let people know? Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much. Uh, it's been uh, a very fun conversation, and I hope that at uh, some point down the road we have part two. Um, if people are listening to this, I have a podcast as well. It's called the Strenuous Life Podcast. It's, I'd say, about 60% Marshall, and then 40% people I find interesting. So we've had, you know, like Will Gadd, the world champion ice climber, um, Mike McCastle, a crazy endurance athlete, you know, one of the world's strongest guys, Chris Duffin. And then a whole uh, murderer's row of martial artists on it as well, including Philip Jelena, who I've uh, sang the praises of. So the Strenuous Life podcast, that's one good place to check out. If you're have a va- if you listen to this and you've got a vague suspicion that maybe you should brush up on your ground game, at least to get a little bit familiar with it, uh, you can find the Roadmap for BJJ app that you started this conversation talking about. If you search for roadmap for bjj app you can get that in ios or uh, android and there's also a companion book which you can get for free at grapplearts.com slash book so grapplearts that's my main site dot com slash book um in download it's a pretty short book lots of pictures but it gives you kind of the overview of what happens on the ground at a you know the view from thirty thousand feet so that you're not completely lost and at least you know at least you learn what you need to learn, right? Okay, I don't know a single thing to do from this position. I should learn one or two things to do from this position, right? So you're not, again, you're not that deer in the headlights. You're not completely uh, caught by surprise. So there you have it. For my uh, for my Kaja Kumbo listeners, definitely, I highly recommend his YouTube channel, Grapple Arts, his DVDs. Really, just check it out. And if anything... The app, it's downloadable, it's really easy to get, and it it's really helpful. <laughs> it really helped me personally quite a bit, and I can't thank you enough for that. Um, all right, well, we're going to be wrapping up. Stay tuned for the wrap-up. And that's a wrap, folks. Thanks again for checking out Social Jello with Angelo. Stay tuned for some more MMA interviews. There's another one I did that I'm going to be putting up hopefully by February, before February. And... Uh, This should be released on the New Year's, so Happy New Year's. Probably should have said that in the intro. And thanks again for supporting the show. Stay tuned. Lots of great martial arts interviews coming up. Catch you all later. Peace.